This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. I'm Lexi. I'm Haley. And I'm Alana. And we're covering the good, the bad, and the ugly of women's history. Tune in to Lady History every Thursday to hear about different ladies across history and cultures, from astronauts to zoologists. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LadyHistoryPod, and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. Last week, we left off with the Old Kingdom reeling from a series of devastating failed reforms by the pharaoh Jedkara. Then... The last king of the 5th dynasty, Unas, died without an heir, leading Egypt into a period of dynastic chaos. Now, let's see what follows. Episode 10, The Fall of the Old Kingdom. To say that Egypt fell into a civil war after Unas' death in 2315 BC is something of an understatement. The chaos that ensued resembled a civil war, but not in the traditional sense of two sides fighting against each other. No, this was a civil war in the Syrian style with dozens of local factions struggling for control. Unas's presence and the remaining wealth of the pharaohs kept the increasingly powerful nomarchs, or local governors, in check. If two nomarchs had a dispute, Unas could enforce peace between two rivals. But, with Unas dead, and with no immediate successor ready to take the throne, the floodgates were open. The proverbial bottle had been shaken by decades of decline in economic wealth, government decentralization, and religious unrest. And with Unas's death, the cap came off. The existing disputes between nomarchs over things like access to water and farmland quickly escalated into hundreds of local skirmishes, with cities leading small armies of conscripted peasants against each other into bloody forays. The throne of Egypt was unable to resolve these conflicts because, well, it was empty. The royal bureaucracy sat paralyzed, unable to deal with the disintegration of order. They commanded immense wealth of their own, but they couldn't just go out there and stop these uprisings. So, their attention was focused on finding a new candidate to sit on the throne. This was no easy matter, though, as each bureaucrat had their own personal favorite choice, and wouldn't stand to see their rivals within the court appoint a puppet of their own. While these bureaucrats squabbled, Egypt continued to burn. But, after years of fighting, backstabbing, and palace coups, one faction ultimately won out. This faction was led by a triumvirate of important people within the royal palace. The first of these people was Unas's daughter, the royal princess Iput. The second, Senajamid, was an elder statesman who was Unas's most trusted advisor. Finally, there was Mehi, leader of the palace guard. Through a combination of force and personality, and, well, force, this triumvirate of power managed to place their favorite candidate on the throne. Egypt's new pharaoh would be Teti the husband of Princess Iput. Now, how much power Teddy actually commanded is questionable, and there is some compelling evidence that, in reality, he never held much power at all. Rather, he was practically a puppet for the three people responsible for his spot on the throne. But, no matter how weak he was, just the undisputed presence of someone on the throne was enough to bring the country back to a state of relative peace. No marks could no longer freely wage war on each other, as they would face swift reprival from the royal palace. Teddy took the royal name Sehetepoe, meaning he who pacifies the land. Egypt's internal warfare was over, for now, but its problems were just beginning. The pacification of Egypt led to a brief period of stability early in Teddy's rule. But, not long after Egypt's civil conflict ended, 
Sena Jamid died. This was unusual and not unexpected, as Sena Jamid was already an old man by the time that Teddy took the throne. But this now left just two people as the true power behind Teddy's throne. And just because they had managed to put Teddy on the throne together, that didn't mean that they were friends. It seems that Mayhi's alliance with Iput was merely one of convenience, and that his loyalty was constantly in question. Senajamid had functioned as something of a balancing force between the princess and the royal guard, alleviating disputes between the two factions. But, with him dead, conflict was now inevitable. Mayhi went out of his way to interfere greatly with the affairs of the royal family. He vastly increased the presence of guards within the palace, often firing palace servants and insisting that the royal family use guards loyal to him as replacements. These new servant guards were, in reality, thinly-veiled spies, meant to ensure that the royal family wouldn't do anything without Mayhi's approval. Recognizing the threat that Mayhi was to her power, Iput attempted to weaken his influence on the pharaoh by arranging a move to a new royal palace where the palace guard would be less of an imposing presence on their rule. However, when Mayhi caught wind of this plan, he was outraged at the blatant attempt to undermine his authority and arranged for Teti's assassination. He quickly found many allies for his plot, largely the same bureaucrats who had opposed Teti's ascension in the first place. Teti and Iput, in what was considered the most dignified way to die by the Egyptians, was strangled to death by their own guards ending the life of the founder of Egypt's sixth dynasty. He had ruled for just 13 years. Mehi and his allies went through great effort to make this palace coup look like a legitimate transition of power. They finished Teddy's pyramid, conducted all of the proper funeral rites, and went through all the motions that would happen if a king had naturally died. But everyone in the royal government knew exactly what was going on. Mehi placed Usurkara, a distant relative of Unas, onto the throne in the hopes that he would be an easier-to-control puppet. Now, I'd like to pause for a minute so we can reflect on everything that just happened. The Pharaoh, once an untouchable person, a living god, was assassinated. Remember, just last episode, I told you that just touching the Pharaoh was a criminal practice that could be met with execution. Now think about that for a minute. A Pharaoh, once someone who you could be killed just for touching, was assassinated on the throne and replaced with a usurper. Think of just how incalculable of a blow to the prestige of the royal family this must have been. Uzerkara's reign immediately faced opposition from the remaining family of Teti, as well as from the majority of the royal bureaucracy. Few within the Egyptian bureaucracy wanted to be associated with the reign of such an obvious usurper. When Uzerkara died after only a year in power, the throne was quickly given back to Teti's son, Pepe, with the support of the majority of royal bureaucrats. Mehi, sensing that his plot had backfired terribly, tried to downplay his involvement in the plot to assassinate Teti, but to no avail. He and his allies in the coup were executed, and their names erased from royal monuments in an effort to damn their memory. Teti and Usarkara's so-called reigns each left very little impact on Egypt itself, except that they both vastly undermined the authority of the pharaoh. While what little power the royal government had left was managed mostly by the army of bureaucrats in the royal palace. Pepe, or as he's more commonly known, Pepe I, took the throne at an incredibly young age. Throughout his reign, Pepe tried to distance himself from the lineage of his weak father, and instead sought to associate himself with his mother's fifth dynasty heritage. 
He largely neglected the upkeep of his father's tomb, while working extensively to upgrade and maintain his mother's. Pepi was aware of the process of decentralization that was occurring throughout Egypt, and was proactive in his attempts to reverse this trend. His first problem revolved around taxation. Decades of rule by weak kings, followed by an empty throne, puppet king, and illegitimate usurper, had given many landowners and nomarchs the impression that royal taxes were optional. Pepi decided to reorganize the Egyptian tax system through the conversion of royally owned farmland into what is called a hout. These houts were administrative centers through which the local landlords had to register their yields before selling them to the market, which made the enforcement of taxation on these landowners much easier. He also created a system of rotation within the bureaucracy, in which regional bureaucrats were often recalled from their post and relocated to a new province, seemingly at random. This system ensured that bureaucrats didn't have the time to set up a local base of power within their area of authority. Finally, he fired many of his royal advisors, and gave their positions to two of his most trusted wives in their stead. With the royal coffers once more being replenished and the runaway bureaucracy under control, Pepi began a series of something that Egypt hadn't seen in a long time, royal building projects. Temples, canals, and even a revamping of the national military were the foremost items on his agenda. He even ordered a military expedition into Nubia and Canaan to restart the collection of tribute a process which had been paused during Egypt's civil conflicts. For the first time in almost a century, things were actually looking up for Egypt. However, this optimism wouldn't last long. Pepi's reforms, while effective, were not necessarily popular among the bureaucratic and landowning classes. If you're a bureaucrat, this guy is making you pack your things every so often and move you into an entirely new location for no apparent reason. If you're a landowner, this jerk is making you actually pay your taxes. So, a conspiracy was hatched with one of Pepi's consorts. Angered that Pepi had passed over her son while considering who his heir would be, a plot was hatched to assassinate the king, let a powerful nomarch serve as regent, and then place her son on the throne. It was the perfect plan, except that it was immediately picked up by royal spies, and the plotters were executed. Only a few years later, another, separate plot against him was discovered, this time led by a powerful official named Rawr, the overseer of Upper Egypt. When Pepi heard about this second plot, it confirmed to him that even in times of relative strength, the transition of power after his death would not be easy. To deal with this threat, he came up with an interesting plan. He appointed his son as co-ruler. Thus, when he died, his son would already be in a position of power, and would therefore be harder to overthrow. This plan worked. And when Pepi died, power passed to his son, Marin Ra, without any threats. Pepi was buried at Saqqara, in one of the few pyramids from this era to actually be completed. He ruled for an astounding 50 years. Marin Ra enjoyed a brief, yet productive rule. He continued most of the policies of his father, centralizing all of the control of Upper Egypt under one vizier in an effort to continue the re-establishment of royal authority. He also led Egypt's first true military conquest past El Fantine, conquering vast swaths of farmland in northern Nubia. However, for unknown reasons, he died relatively soon into his time as pharaoh. He was buried at an incomplete pyramid in Saqqara, after ruling for a brief, yet productive nine years. Merenra was by all account a successful ruler, but his early death is one of the most disastrous events in Egyptian history. While 59 years of strong and stable rule had managed to stabilize the rapidly collapsing Old Kingdom, it was mostly a facade. 
The taxation system had been fixed, but the treasury was still recovering from years of misuse. Marinra and Pepe's invasions of Canaan and Nubia proved effective, but also costly. And most importantly, they left in their wake a series of weakened, but very annoyed landlords and officials who were very happy to see them gone. The tragedy is that, with maybe just one more effective ruler like these two, the old kingdom may have survived and made this brief renaissance more permanent. But instead, the worst-case scenario occurred. You see, when Marinra died, he left behind only one son, a six-year-old boy named Pepe II. Young Pepe II, who I'll be calling by his Horus name, Nefrakara, to avoid confusion, lived a privileged life within the royal palace. His childhood was experienced largely under the protective watch of his mother, who was also his grandmother, and likely also his great-aunt, because this is ancient Egypt, so of course she was. He was showered with expensive toys made of imported ivory and ebony wood, and was even given a captured pygmy man from Nubia, who would serve as sort of a hybrid nanny and jester. However, while Neferkara was enjoying this happy and quiet childhood, Egypt rapidly reverted into its old state of chaos. With no true pharaoh around to resolve conflicts, nomarchs began openly waging war against each other again. The just recently subdued Nubians, Libyans, and Canaanites all simultaneously ceased payment of tribute, and even the payment of taxes from local landowners ceased altogether. When Neferkara finally came of age, he put down his toys and stopped playing with his jester, and was told that he would have to take command of his kingdom. First, he had to stop the countless wars occurring between nomarchs within his borders. He also needed to reinstate the tax system, and also making sure that tribute would begin trickling in from Egypt's neighbors again. He had to manage all this with a bankrupt state, and not knowing which advisors he could trust. You really have to feel for the kid. Now, I should point out that the early stages of Neferkara's reign seem like a positive omen. Under his rule, the conflicts between nomarchs declined, and a brief period of stability ensued. He appointed two separate viziers, one of Upper and one of Lower Egypt, in an attempt to make these regions easier to govern and further enforce the pharaoh's will on the increasingly wealthy nomarchs. But while this strategy was initially successful, factors outside of the control of the government conspired to ensure that Neferkara's reign would not restore Egyptian glory. In a global climate shift known as the 4.2 Kilo Year Event, a decline in global temperatures caused a massive change in weather patterns throughout the world. A drought occurred in the Ethiopian highlands, drastically reducing the amount of water flowing into the Nile River. The Nile's floods were quelled, and Egypt's agricultural output plummeted. In the land where prosperity once ruled, it was famine who now reigned. Neferkara's government proved unable to respond to the famine, as the royal grain stores quickly emptied. In a last-ditch effort to secure food for his people, Neferkara ordered several raids into Libya and Nubia to collect tribute in the form of cattle and grain, only to find that these lands were just as impoverished and starved as his. With grain yields low, peasants and landowners could no longer afford to pay taxes even if they wanted to, and the royal treasury ran dry. Now bankrupt and defeated, the royal government could barely afford to fund its own existence. Necessary advisors, bureaucrats, and servants were fired. The sleepwalking royal government, unable to really do anything, trudged on though, continuing to fulfill its ceremonial duties. Neferkara ruled Egypt for an incredibly long time, the longest rule of any Old Kingdom pharaoh, an incredible 62 years. By the end of his rule, 
Nefrikara was a barely conscious, likely geriatric, incredibly ill old man on the brink of death, a mirror image of the kingdom he ruled. This sad state was also reflected in the pyramid in which he would eventually be buried. The masonry was very inconsistent, the limestone shell was of poor quality, and the monument collapsed soon after its construction. Even the funeral arrangements were arranged sloppily, likely rushed by an undermanned, underpaid crew. This would be the last royal pyramid built in Egypt for the next 500 years. Neferkara was the third to last ruler of the Old Kingdom. But, while Neferkara was not technically the last king of the Old Kingdom of Egypt, in a sense he was. He was the last king of this time to truly exercise any sort of earthly power beyond his personal prestige. He was the last king to collect taxes, wage war, or commission major works of architecture. When Neferkara died, the Old Kingdom technically remained, but the Old Kingdom that we've come to know, the kingdom that subjugated its neighbors, commissioned great statues, and constructed everlasting monuments, died with him. Neferkara's long life also proved to be something of a curse, as his son, Merenra II, was already an old man by the time his father died. For this reason, Merenra II's reign was short and uneventful, and he died little more than a year after taking the throne. This short and inactive reign gave Merenra II little time to achieve anything, and his quick death further delegitimized the prestige of the pharaoh. He was the second to last ruler of the Old Kingdom. And, at long last, we can put this dying country out of its misery. The last pharaoh of the Old Kingdom, a man named Netrakara Siptah, took the throne in 2184 BC. Now, I wish this story could conclude in a way that feels appropriate for the end of such a magnificent civilization. I wish it ended with Netrakara riding valiantly into battle against an invading horde, or with a desperate set of reforms and a last-ditch attempt to save the kingdom from its internal destruction, or even with an exciting yet damaging palace coup to finally put a nail in the old kingdom's sarcophagus. But, that would be a lie. The Old Kingdom didn't end in a means deserving of a Hollywood superstar at the end of a blockbuster. Instead, it died in a way that most people will. That me, and you, the person listening to this, most likely will as well. It died slowly, painfully, fighting a losing battle to stay alive against an internal illness. In this way, the Old Kingdom is kinda relatable, you know? Just like a human, it outlived its lifespan and came to an end. By this point in our story, the Old Kingdom is proverbially comatose. Its royal state is non-functional. The pharaoh is a mere figurehead, and its bureaucratic institutions are paralyzed from bankruptcy. But the heart is still beating, still desperately trying to serve as an engine to keep the body running. So we can't legally declare the Old Kingdom dead yet. Netrakara is still doing royal ceremonies, and he still wears the crown of the two lands above his head and he is still venerated as a living god. But, one day in 2181 BC, just three years into his rule, Netrakara dies, and with him, the Old Kingdom dies too. Next week, we'll look back on what we learned from the demise of the Old Kingdom, and look forward to what lies in Egypt's future after such a tremendous collapse. Thank you for listening.